I'll tell every young person out there right now, go find yourself a mentor that will invest their time in your career and helping you better yourself and guiding you in the right direction. From Exabeam, this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. I'm Steve Moore, and today I sit down with Mark Crudgington, CISO at Wood Forest National Bank. On today's show, Mark and I talk about what higher education institutions are and could be doing to better prepare students for a career in cybersecurity. How do we as security professionals share our experience to help prepare the next generation of CISOs for the challenges of an industry in flux? Building effective cybersecurity programs in higher education is a great starting point. And for those programs to match the realities of industry, real-world experience and mentorship are crucial elements to weave into their DNA. All right, Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. If you would, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, yeah. Great to be here, and, and thank you for having me. I'm Mark, Mark Crudgington. Uh, I am the CISO, SVP Information Security at Wood Forest National Bank. I reside in the Houston area and have been at the bank for the better part of seven and a half years. Previous to that, I was a national director of IT governance risk compliance for a very large consumer packaged goods sales and marketing company. And, um, you know, a father, married, two children. I think I have a good blend of the technical side of technology, as well as the business side, have multiple certifications and an MBA from a top tier school, pretty active in the industry, active in several uh, universities, active with some boards, promoting the industry, promoting cybersecurity, and trying to help train up the future of cybersecurity as well. So I, I see on your I'm I'm LinkedIn sniping, and there's a major university in Huntsville, Texas that you assist. You're an advisory board member to a university. Yes, it's noted that it's on the Forensics Intelligence Center. What is that like? I, I for those that are maybe thinking about something similar. So for the listening CISO, kind of taking a brief detour, what's that involvement like? And obviously, it's it's a volunteer thing, but. What are the tasks that you perform and what did you see were the greatest needs of the university when you give your time? Yeah, um, it's not too, too much time, which is great. Uh, as you know, CISOs are probably limited on their time, but we meet maybe twice a year and have you know, discussions through other mediums, you know, maybe on a quarterly basis. But the interesting part is you know how U.S. universities are. They have a finite amount of electives that they can give, and those electives have to be geared toward the program. And then they have other electives that might be add-on electives. So it's really you have your core classes, then you have your electives that you know students may need to take, and then they have maybe four other classes that they can choose and take related to their program that they like. So what we're trying to do as an organization, as, as a governing body or an advisory committee, we're trying to help the university determine what holes are missing in that program across the board. It could be, you know, students providing them with the proper classes. Maybe they can't take a class, but they offer a seminar. How to fill those gaps to get those students more ready to, when they graduate the program, to hit the ground running and it's good networking amongst the advisory committee members. You know, obviously the university has sporting events that we could attend tailgating events and that, but really you get to learn from your peers and hear from peers that might be from different industries and then just design a program, you know, an information security program or a information systems program it's really going to be beneficial to the students that are taking it and then the companies that hire those students once they graduate. So it's 
really an interesting and it's been a good time so far. And the school is really developing a great cyber program. So getting right to the point, what do you think is the greatest gap between academia and being able to hire a new student? From your perspective as a hiring CISO, like what, when you walk in, you're like, hey, you know what, this looks good, but the people I've talked to, the kids I've interfaced with really were not aware of and finish the sentence. What, what is that? Well, primarily, I think the students are really not aware of what a real world SOC analyst goes through and the tools that they need to know and understand and also maybe some of the certifications that they might need that help them get a leg up, if you will, or be above other candidates. So it's really kind of that real world, here's the experience that I have, and here's how I translate my education into the job that you're uh, looking for uh, an analyst or someone at that level to do. They've got a lot of theory and a lot of, you know, classroom knowledge. Some of that knowledge may not be so tailored to what we see out in in the industry, in the the private sector, public sector. And it, it might just be specific things related to theorizing on how to, you know, set up a DMZ or, you know, risk and that. But not exactly on like experience on the tool set that someone might use and even coming out with certifications that give them broad knowledge of the security industry, such as a a security plus or a a CISPI. I know you need years of experience to get a, a CISPI, but the security plus is a good foundation security certification for students to get. Absolutely. I I think that, that, Academia, it's glad that they're welcoming the message back from you because I've found in many cases they don't want to hear that their program does not represent reality, meaning it's good maybe in theory, but you still have students that then can't describe how does a machine get infected? How does an adversary behave? You know, how does lateral movement occur? It's typically something that they're not aware of. So I'm glad to hear that this organization not only has a a feedback loop, but is also working to maybe right-size the curricula and, and right. lean, on, lean on experts for that. Yeah, the uh, professor, the doctor that, that, that's over the program, this is his third uh, university to go to where he established this kind of program. And um, I mean, we, you know, most of the people that are there are on the advisory committee are alums of the program. I actually got on the advisory committee because I started a cybersecurity internship here at the bank and they were a local university and one of their students was the first one that we brought on in that program. So just fortunate timing and fortunate execution. So internship. And if you can't do that, just job shadowing is one of the most valuable things that I've found in my career, not only as a recipient, but more importantly, as a leader of an organization to allow for that to occur either yeah. that for people looking to job change or uh, in particular in this example, students. You couldn't agree more. Yeah. It's an awesome thing. So, so we kind of derailed a little there, but I thought that was a very interesting element of kind of who you are and wanted to explore that. I think there will be people that will enjoy hearing about that. And, you know, I think it's a good feather in one's cap as a leader to, to make yourself available uh, to help make the educational programs relevant. So congrats to you and uh, hats off. So a little bit of a, another change here. So you mentioned earlier in an earlier conversation that you kind of had two routes of things you're really interested in. And one was more technical and the other was developing sort of the next group of, of technicians and leaders and kind of mentorship. We're going to spend a little bit of time on that, kind of both those topics in a blended way. But what advice would you give to your younger self? You've got a lot of experience. You were a consultant, you were an engineer. So you started off on the tech side and then went into leadership and executive leadership. For the person who's not yet a CISO, share some advice, some things you wish you had done. Share some advice to your 25-year-old self if he were listening. What would you do different? 
that's a very good question. I would probably start it before I was 25, but I think when I look back on my life, I have very few regrets. And the only regrets that I have are not because I did something and did it wrong. It's because I didn't do anything at all. So my advice to my younger self would be take more risk and whatever risk looks like to you, it could be going to get a certification. It could be completing school. It could be taking on another assignment that's maybe not directly in your your path of what you're you're doing that work. Maybe it's you know go out and and meet someone that's at a higher level than you in your company and ask to be mentored. But it, it's really would be a call to take action on something that you feel will further your career, further your knowledge, broaden your view of you know whatever industry you're in or technology career path that you want to take. So go out and, and take those risks and tackle them with all, all that you have and all the energy you have. As you, you guys may know, though, the more experience you get in technology and, and in life, you know, the less time you, you, you seem to have to kind of sharpen your tool belt or, and, you know, either family commitments or job commitments that you're being pulled from many ways. But I think it would be around don't be afraid to take risk and don't be afraid to essentially, if you're, if you're willing to go for it all, don't be afraid to lose whatever you have because it can easily be gained again, unless it's your health or your family, of course, but in terms of career. Yeah, no, health is, I think that's one thing, especially, I think there's some security culture, especially among young men where there's a lot of unhealthy habits. And I've been sort of a subscriber, uh, unfortunately, to many of those, whether, whether it's not enough uh, sleep, not enough activity, poor diet, energy drinks, you know, these sorts of things that sort of pollute the mind and body. So health is, is keenly important and one that I think gets missed. But back to your statement on risk, I love that. I think myself, I lived too cautiously and I didn't realize that I should have taken more risks. And maybe I've joked in the past, maybe fired more bosses, even where you're kind of in a bad working environment and you're not getting mentored. What's one thing that you think you got right, you know, with a colorful background like you have, and it's multifaceted. What's one thing that you think you did really well, if you were sort of giving uh, credit to your younger self and say, yeah, that's a good decision. What would that be? Well, I I think it kind of is a a double-edged sword when you talk about that. It was like I was not afraid to make change to better myself or make decisions that on the surface, they may have not looked good, but I had an end goal in mind. And the decision I was making was the quicker path to my end goal. But I think that would probably be where I take credit because, you know, I was you know, stuck in Houston when I was younger and I was not happy. I was very stubborn, young person. I did not grow up with a father. My father passed away when I was young and it kind of drove a lot of me doing things. So I, I did them on my own. I didn't have a father figure. And that's a, a regret that I didn't go seek that mentor when I was younger. Uh, there was a lot of things I would probably be doing differently. But what it did do is it forced me to take the action myself and not kind of rely on someone else. So I was making those decisions. So I was having to live with those decisions as well. But I had a long term plan in place. And so I I was not doing well in Houston in terms of like, oh, I'm not satisfied in my job. You know, I had an associate degree at the time. You know, it. It reminds me of that Robert Frost poem, you know, two roads diverged in a wooded area and I took the less traveled one. That seems to be my life. And that is my life motto. And I appreciate everything that I did. So I wasn't happy here in Houston. So I wanted more job experience. I wanted to go get my degree. What did I do? I joined the Air Force. And, you know, it was it was right during the Gulf War time, which people thought I was crazy for signing up. But I waited a little while and then I was destined to go to um, 
the middle of Nebraska, nothing against Nebraska, but it wasn't my idea of a globe trotting career in the Air Force being stuck in the middle of a wheat field in Nebraska. So I ended up trading with someone and, and got sent to Germany, enjoyed it there, and then got lucky enough to land back in the Silicon Valley. And as soon as I stepped foot off the plane in San Francisco, I knew I was only staying in the Air Force for four years and was just going to stay out there and make a run at, at technology as much as I could. So essentially, I'm on my own in a, an area that I, you know, have never lived. So I'm, I'm taking risks, you know, I'm like, and, in, in, you know, come hell or high water, I'm going to make it succeed. And what did I do? I went out and got a part time job at, while I was in the Air Force and setting myself up for when I get out of the Air Force, I have money and I've got a plan. And then, you know, shortly after getting out of the Air Force, I, I got a, uh, a job and then I got another job right after that at a company where I could lay my roots in that area. And I stayed there for four years and then went to a startup. And, you know, kind of the rest is history, but it was me taking a chance of like, okay, I recognize that I need to get out of Houston to get more career experience. And then I need to stay in California to do what I love. And I'm, I'm smack dab in the middle of, of the Silicon Valley. And literally where I used to live is right across the street from where the Googleplex is now. I mean, I could walk there in five minutes from where I was located. So it was like the perfect place to be in the Silicon Valley during the computer boom, which was the mid nineties. So it led me to where I am now, the air force. You know, I learned about security in the air force. I had a top secret clearance. I was doing security things, intelligence. When it came time at the, at three com to do security things, my um, manager was like, you're the person to do it. You have security experience. When I went to the startup company, we hadn't even released, you know, 1.0 of the product and they were looking to me. They're like, oh, you have security experience in developing access controls and that. We want you to help develop that with a marketing team on our product. So it kind of led me to where I'm at now and then just continuing to build security without actually, you know, being in security, building my knowledge, building my technical capabilities at 3Com. And all along the, all along the uh, trail of my career path, there were breadcrumbs that I was continuously picking up. My regret, though, and I'll tell every young person out there right now, go find yourself a mentor that will invest their time in your career and helping you better yourself and guiding you in the right direction, whether that's a parent or whether it's just someone higher up at the company. You know, people... People like us that are, you know, at, you know, the top of the career ladder, so to speak, or near the top, we love to mentor younger kids, uh, younger, younger colleagues. If anything, it gets us out of the office and we can go have lunch, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's take a look into that. So finding a mentor, I think that's a very hard thing because I, later in my career, I had some people that gave great advice and I would consider a mentor, but early on, I mean, the first 10 years or more, I didn't have, I didn't feel like I really had anybody and really didn't know where to look. And I felt like that I didn't even know enough people up high enough in the company to, to go kind of bother them about, Hey, will you teach me how not to be a crappy employee or teach me what to look for in, in my career? What advice do you have for the person looking for a mentor? And what advice do you have for the people who might want to be a mentor and who are not? Like maybe one thing each. Yeah, for the, for the person that's looking for a mentor, it doesn't necessarily have to be in your company. LinkedIn is a great place to find a mentor. We didn't have LinkedIn when I was you know, starting off in my career, obviously. So I would, I would not confine yourself to just your company. Cause like you said, maybe you work at a company where those people don't have time to mentor you or you don't think you're the right fit or they're not the right fit to mentor you. And sometimes outside your company is, is better as well because they may not be biased, you know, towards what's going on in your company. 
And remember, it's about your career and not your company ladder, so to speak. Although it's great if you find someone in your company that's willing to mentor you and can pitch projects your way. On the mentee uh, or mentor side, rather, you know, I would say be open to just just doing it. It doesn't take a lot of time. You know, we have the technology now where you can get on a WebEx with someone or you may see them at a conference or if you're part of InfraGuard or those kind of associations, security associations, you could always meet there. It's, you know, well worth your time to invest in an individual that could one day become your employee. But just regardless, you're helping out the industry that sorely needs people at the managerial level. Uh, level and higher to to step up and do the right thing to help protect you know assets whether they be at your company across the U.S. or um, otherwise. My goal, you mentioned maybe mentoring someone who ends up being an employee. It's half a joke, but also quite serious. I always wanted to end up working for one of my mentees. So being the kind of the the aging XO, if you will, of someone's program as an advisor or as a kind of a, a player coach one day is maybe for multiple groups would be my, maybe my dream. And definitely, you know, the, the virtual CISO market is getting hot and is hot. So, you know, it's always a opportunity out there and the way cybersecurity is going and the direction with the proliferation of more technology out to the edge and in the hands of individuals. I don't think we're going to see that that day where cybersecurity is less important than it is today. It will only be more important. Absolutely. I don't see, you know, we're fortunate. We're very fortunate to be in this space. My road was non-traditional, kind of getting into InfoSec in particular, was kind of working in it before I was officially in it. But what a wonderful time. But also what a great level of responsibility on our shoulders, not only to get the tech right, but also to try to be a great leader and be someone that the more junior people can look up to, to kind of pattern, not only how to be a good technician, but more importantly, how to be, what does proper security leadership look like? I think we sometimes lack that. Yeah. And so what a wonderful thing we can be a part of uh, in this sort of age of infosec yeah and you know unfortunately you know time is the greatest commodity and you know all of us seem to lack uh, enough time i certainly wish i could give a lot more back to the industry either writing uh articles or a book or mentoring being in more advisory roles and that that definitely would be great well there's only so much time too and i think you mentioned it you know that it's you said it well that you have to pick, there's so much to be done. You have to pick and select carefully, meaning you're very active. You're, I, I can see in what we've talked about, you're, you're a part of many things, but you also have to say no a lot. Otherwise yes. you'll be sort of watered down, if not to your day job, uh, to your family. And that you can only do those things for so long before you eat yourself. Right? Yeah. And I, I totally agree. And, and you do have to learn to say no, just because you can constantly be pulled. I mean, there's so many, especially living in a large city, there's so many activities going on, so many conferences going through or, you know, vendors, whatever that would like you to speak or like you to do X. And you do have to keep in mind that, you know, your most important thing is your job and to focus on that and also, you know, your family as well. But if you can find the right balance and the right blend, you know, all the, all the more power to you. And it's, a lot of fun once you do. I'll tell you one thing, you mentioned it, so I'll, I want to accent it a little bit. I think one of the best things that people can do is to take time to present. It doesn't have to be at a fancy conference. It doesn't have to be at Black Hat. Just to get up, to organize your thoughts, to put together an appropriate presentation and present. It doesn't have to be a TED Talk, but you have to work to, the goal should be to get better, a little better each time. Mm -hmm. And whether you're a CISO or more importantly, somebody who reports up through, you know, the security org, that's one of the finest things providing your company will allow you to do it. And some won't, which is absurd yeah. for those listening in general counsel or privacy or whoever. Yeah, I you agree. Are absurd if you don't let your people. Yeah, yeah. And I see that often, but the presenting piece, 
That's awesome, awesome practice. The piece I'll share, and I want your feedback on if, you, if you'd give it, is for a large portion of my career, I felt like I didn't have anything interesting enough to share. I was afraid to speak. Not only was I a bad presenter, but I also felt like I didn't have anything interesting enough to share. Have you ever felt that way? And what did you do to kind of get above that? I think it's not that I didn't feel that um, I had anything interesting to say. It's just that I felt that I hadn't earned that right to say it. And once I got over that, and me on, on Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP. And you know, when, when I tell people that, and then I tell them I'm, what I do, they're like, wow, how did you end up doing that? And it was that you know, less traveled path. But no, I think it was like getting the courage to believe that I would want to be heard or that I should be heard. And you know, there were some rough patches when I first started speaking. And, you know, I mean, I, I vividly remember one of my first talks. I got heckled by a guy that was in his early 60s, late 50s. And I was trying to do this agile type presentation that was very collaborative, like agile. And this guy just kind of stood up. And we're in not a big room, but it was, you know, 50, 60 people in there at an IEEE conference or monthly meeting. And he just stood up and says, we don't want to pick what you should tell us. We just want you to tell us what we need to learn. And I'm like, oh, my God. OK, there went my presentation. So it was a fun presentation, too. He he ruined it. But afterward, the president apologized to me of the chapter. But, you know, it's like maybe it's not a presentation that you start off with, but maybe it's a roundtable to get your feet wet or maybe it's on a panel or, you know, something like that, that you can lead and where it's just talking. It's not, you don't have to put together this big elaborate slide presentation because unless you have a team to do that, that's the most painful part of presenting to me is putting together that presentation. It's very tedious because you don't want to get up there and just have a white, you know, slide. And, you know, it's, I always try and use the less is more approach when presenting too. You don't need big elaborate slides. Just know what you want to talk about and where you want to go with it and let it flow and engage the audience as well. But yeah, I don't, I think that was probably my biggest when it came, when I started presenting was not like I didn't have anything to say. It's just that I didn't feel, I guess, worthy enough to say it or like I'd earned that right. Like why me, you know? I think a lot of people suffer from that. Even if they have lots of experience and lots of things they can share, they may not feel like they're, the way you said it, is kind of the entitled enough yet to, to share it. I've told one person recently, just they led a big technical conversion. I said, hey, get up and talk about what went wrong. Like, did, I was like, did you have any trouble with this conversion? I said, oh yeah, there was you know, five or six things that sort of blew up and we didn't expect. I was like, so do a presentation on that. Do here are seven things I experienced that were failures during my IAM conversion. Yeah. You know, or, or deployment. I said, that's a presentation. Yeah. So people will will love to hear that. And and the good news is you've already experienced that. Like you you don't even have to think about it because you already know sort of what sucked about that. Yeah. Like you know what kept you up at night. Absolutely. So you got a story to tell. And I find that people tend to get more out of what went wrong versus what went right. Obviously, you want to throw in a few nuggets of like what went right or here's what I would do. But people really want to hear how to avoid something going south, especially in technology, because we all know it's going to happen. But how do you overcome that or how do you deal with it or how do you prevent it? I mean, that's great knowledge. That, that sounds like a winning presentation to me. I think it's a great formula to consider, you know, talk about even when talking about non-tech. Most of the presentations I give are now that I'm strong enough to give them, confident enough is my insecurities and failures. One of the things I think maybe one of the better ones I've given is um, career development and leadership during a breach, which has been pretty well received. And it's not about tech. It's not even about the, the company that I was with at the time. It's about all the times I didn't feel like I was good enough and it's been well received. Mm. And so I think that's, that's kind of where I 
kind of came up with a formula on what went wrong with the migration and then, you know, share that. So speaking of the things that go wrong, in an earlier conversation, you had um, maybe not an ax to grind, but some stuff that you were kind of irritated on the tech side, uh, especially vendors. Let's jump into that. So what's your beef right now with a lot of the tech vendors? Like you mentioned, it's it's not necessarily an axe grind, but it's one of the one of the holes that I see missing in our industry, whether it's you know cybersecurity or or technology. But I just find that there is too many too many solutions coming out that are just point solutions, and they don't look at the big picture nor seem to understand the problems, especially in cybersecurity. But I can speak for IT as well, because I I work with a lot of IT guys, primarily work with IT. But we have too many point solutions. We don't have enough time to look at another pane of glass that is going to tell us something's wrong. So we can go look at this other pane of glass that tells us, yes, what you just looked at was wrong. Now go look over here. We need solutions that solve what I call the the three major areas, and I'm speaking cybersecurity here now. They address the lack of talent, lack of resources that we have in cybersecurity. They address the alert fatigue, and by that, I mean it's not necessarily too many alerts, but it's like too many alerts that have been raised up to the nth degree and really should be a a blip on your screen. And then also that lack of, of time and that automated that automated response that we that we need. It may need to be configured, but those three things are not really being addressed. And you know, the alert fatigue is one. It's like, well, that's not really a high risk in my environment. That's low risk. Then the lack of talent, it's like, I can't send my analyst to go look at eight different screens because he needs to resolve this in five minutes. And by the time he's done looking and investigating in, you know, five, six solutions, game could be over. And then just in the remediation aspect of of things and how to get down to what needs to be remediated quickly and resolve that by developing playbooks, you know, whatever the case may be, it's just missing. And I think part of that is because we have many developers, vendors of of tools that may not have necessarily sat in our seat. If they did, it may have been a long time ago. But I just don't understand why they don't go out more instead of just trying to sell you that point solution or whatever. Just talk about what we as CISOs feel is important in solving today and and the problems and how they can address it. And I I get that, you know, at the end of the day, they need to sell product and maybe they they have a baseline product and want to add to it or whatever. But there's a better solution out there and a better way of doing things. And I just think it's going unsolved right now. So let's, you covered a lot right there. I want to unpack several pieces of that because I think there's an incredible amount of information that's very important. So I would say, I mean, in the short time we've had a chance to chat that you're a, probably from your technical background, a technical CISO, even though you're very interested in, in leadership and maybe that's your priority now. What if you're a CISO or director of security and you're not sure? Meaning you don't know if this applies to you, meaning you don't know if the vendors, if the situation applies based on the vendors you've gone with, you don't know based on the behaviors that it takes to sort of ask if, are we having a bad day or a good day? What's your first step? If you're a CISO or a security leader, maybe even a CIO, let's go there. And you're not sure, like give me one or two things kind of quickly that would be a warning sign that says, does this apply to me? I think one, it would be the amount of solutions that 
that overlap and, and correct me if I'm not on the right path, but it would be the amount of solutions that overlap or just fill one need versus many needs. And, you know, if your question is around how do you determine that, I, th- I think the best way is maybe go to those individuals that you have trust in within your department and ask them, you know, what their thoughts are. And hopefully uh, they're giving you the right information and they just don't want another tool. Like some see that new shiny object and they want that. But if maybe that may not work or that may not be a viable option, go out and have a third party assessment done to kind of baseline your environment over other environments that they might see. And this wouldn't be through a a vendor or VAR who's going to turn around and sell you something, but it might be a consulting firm like, you know, one of the big four or tier two audit firms like an RSM that has a lot of experience in cybersecurity. And they're just there to provide you a service. If you go out and buy tool XYZ after or consolidate this, it's okay with them. They're not in it for that. They're just there to give you strong, solid advice. What about an indicator? And I give this advice, but I, I want your opinion on it. One sort of tell, you know, like a, at a poker table, so to speak, if you're seeing, if you go go down and ask about a problem, a phishing message or some bad event or an incident, and sort of looking at the number of tools simply that each analyst has to go into to sort of answer a question. I mean, even is there a limit? You know, if you see somebody signing into eight systems to answer a question that you ask, that to me would be an indicator that you could um, probably utilize some efficiencies and maybe work on some automation. Yeah. You know, and I think I think the other one is we jokingly say this is how much Notepad or Excel do you see being used in the SOC, cutting and pasting out of multiple systems yes. to try to stitch together a window into a problem or a timeline. Does that seem to hold water with you or yeah. those be two decent indicators? Yeah, definitely that holds water. And what I would suggest is for, you know, whether it's the CISO, CIOs to go sit with that SOC analyst and say, take me through some troubleshooting. I'm just going to sit here and shadow you for an hour. And I want you to, sh- you know, go through your processes as you would if I was not here and resolving things. And You don't have to say anything to me. I'm just going to sit here and observe and watch what they do. And like you say, if they're having a copy from one screen to this screen, spend too much time in this system so they can go over to this system. I think you, you know that you have an efficiency problem and that it, that it needs to be solved in some way. So certainly. So we spoke earlier that obviously there's a piece that we need to own as the leader, as the CISO, but the vendor owns some of this as well. The vendor, I think, when they come in and talk to the security team or the CISO, you know, you mentioned earlier that they don't, they don't understand the real pain. They don't understand the stuff your team's going through. Many of them sort of refuse to listen or, or maybe ignore that. I think the first step to that would be a good conversation, maybe the good introduction to the company or the good, good ongoing relationship. What is that like? If the vendor's going to come in and talk to you and you're going to spend time with them, What's a good conversation to understand the pain? Like, what are the things that, what things should they ask? What would leave you happy and as that first step? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I think, you know, one, it's, it's probably not going to be your account manager, depending on if you're talking about a, a, a VAR or a solutions provider, it's probably not going to be that account manager, but maybe someone at that regional level or upper regional director uh, that will come and talk to you. And if it's a, if it's a specific vendor, you know, someone along that line as well, or maybe even, you know, I've had a lot of conversations with VPs of sales, like global sales, even CEOs, or, you know, someone at the CTO level that can pull those levers to make change or uh, provide strategic guidance to their engineering teams on developing product. But no matter who it is, it would be someone that's more interested in your success, either of using their product or 
helping them develop their product better, but that really wants to understand and ask you like, well, I know you bought this for this particular reason, but tell me about your overall strategy and what areas do you see as pain points either with efficiency or you know, maybe not solving the problem fully or it's not addressing what you initially thought, but it, it, it's conversations like that. It's, they're not looking to sell you a product, but really to try and gather information, be very investigative in what you're going through and what you're dealing with and solving those kind of issues or wanting to hear. And there are teams like this where it might be a customer success, but you know they want to see how you're, you're using their product and, and how you can better use their product. And even sometimes those teams, they fall into that trap of just thinking about that product that you have right now or that they have right now versus big picture. What, what do they need to work on over the next two, three years to help you solve more problems or help you su- solve problems more efficiently? So I, that's the kind of guidance I would give you know, someone that's good and willing to listen. Yeah, have, have a conversation who's genuinely interested in you to start off with and then the pain you feel, your organization. And not just trying to crowbar in kind of what's what's available to purchase. What what role does the VAR have in this? Because you mentioned that there's a lot of products out there that are really just really just like a feature. There's too many panes of glass, and then there's sort of a the, the VAR in there is typically that that middle person, kind of that coach consultant on both sides. Do they play a, a role in this or what, what do they need to do to kind of keep, keep everyone sane? Is there a, a bit of advice you have there for those listening in that position? Yeah, in, in, my, in my opinion, the VAR should be the one that, that, that plays the, the biggest role in this. If they're, they're a very good VAR and thinking strategically, one Let's be honest, they don't care if you buy this solution or that solution as long as you're buying from them. You know, they're happy. But the VAR has the ability to provide you that big picture solution. They need to be more consultative to us. And the other thing is the scope that they see is maybe much greater than a particular vendor and a particular vendor sales team because they're almost like the sniper you know, the, the vendor sales team, you know, they want to come in and hit that customer, hit their mark. Where I think of VAR, yes, they have people like that that need to meet their quota and, and so forth. But they also could establish the people that are above them, maybe at the regional level or even at, at a on a corporate scale that may even have been a CISO before someone in that role that can provide you that consultative approach. And it's kind of like, well, here's your problems. And I agree with you. Those problems I'm also seeing at this company here, this company here. And also I'm getting reports from my counterparts that they're seeing that in the Eastern region as well as the Western region. Here's how some of my clients have solved it or our company's clients have solved it. And you start rolling those things out. And it's really like now that you feel that you've given them that that great advice of how other people have done it, how you've seen it be successful. And it's not really salesy. They know they got your, your menu, your buffet to choose from. Um, and I'll be frank with you. I don't need a VAR to come in and tell me all the products that are available. I mean, we see the emails, we see them at conferences. We have an idea. What I need to see a VAR tell me is like, well, we've seen the problem that you're facing be successful in this manner or turn out disastrous by going this route. Those kinds of things that what our peers might be doing. And not that we can't get that through conferences and, you know, meetups and InfraGuard and other associations as well. But it's good to hear that from a VAR like that might be nationally instead of just local. Have you ever had to tell a VAR or a vendor that 
what you shared with me earlier, which was, I don't think you understand me or what I'm going through, or even I don't think you have enough people who've worked in security. Have you ever had to bluntly share that? And if yes, what was the response? Well, I I had to bluntly share something similar to that. It was about a particular VAR where the individual came in and we were sitting there discussing my team or my teams. We're in a conference room discussing something. And I had to, uh, the response was, you know, someone was telling them in discussion uh, around the table on how we do things. And he, the technical account manager, SME, essentially looked at this guy and said, why in the world would you guys do it that way? And I'm telling you, my fingers just crawled across the table. And had I not had a lot of respect for this VAR, I would have thrown them out of the room right then and there. And in fact, because of my connections, I went up to their CEO and others around that table, their VP of sales and stuff, where we were meeting. And I told them about this guy. And I said, I will never allow this guy back in my company again, no matter where I work. Because, you know, he had the bedside manners or the, the manners you know, a serial killer, you know, it's like, come on, you don't say that to someone. And it was like, here's the better approach, you know, say, yeah, that's a good way of doing it. I've also seen it be successful in this way. It's like, that's sales 101, you know? But was this a technical person or a salesperson? Do you remember? It was a technical person that is part of the sales team. Okay. Got it. He traveled with the account manager and I, you know, love the account manager dearly, um, great person and great in that sales side of things. But, you know, this and the, but this guy had been in industry. It wasn't like he just fell off the uh, techno account manager truck and showed up on our doorstep. He had experience even at the vendor level, not just the VAR level, but at the vendor level. And it was very surprising. I was like taken aback that somebody would be so poor in the language that they use in a meeting when you're trying to win over customers, especially since this was one of the first times that we had met this person. Just very disappointing. Pretty rough. I mean, I think a lot of technical people have gotten a hall pass on lack of manners because we've, I think for a long time, weighed technical skill very highly and you could sort of get away with um, that type of opinion or language or personality. But more often now, and it's one of the things we saw in a trend in our state of the sock report, where communication and interpersonal skills were up by a big percent year over year in terms of what it takes to sort of have a healthy organization. Whereas in prior years, it was kind of a lower, lower percentage in terms of what the respondents said. So that kind of, I know they're not in your sock, but it's a, probably someone who's visiting with your team and we can't give hall passes for that sort of bad behavior anymore. Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, everybody, regardless of, you know, the level you're at or where you come from, it was just flat out rude. Okay. And, and I can't understate that or overstate that it was just flat out rude, whether it was good sales practice or not, it would be, it would be rude, whatever context. And I mean, it just wasn't appreciated and everybody knows in technology. Well, you may be doing it that that way, but someone over here may be doing the same thing, but differently. And you both work out, you know, the appropriate solution because all of our environments are different. And there's so many ways to uh, solve a problem that what may work good for you, you may not work well over there and vice versa. So for somebody to take that approach, it just was not pretty. So Mark, I can't thank you enough for making part of your busy day available to us to join us on the show, the new CISO, sort of pursuant to the name, one of the questions we ask is, what does being a new CISO mean to you today? Ooh, wow. What does a new CISO mean today? It certainly doesn't mean the same thing that it did 10 years ago. And I think in most cases, the CISO now has a larger seat at the table or even a seat at the table, it means that that person has to be a little bit more business savvy than 
they used to be. So you're now conversing, interacting on a different level than we used to. I believe it's more of an arms wide open approach versus a top down approach as well. We're being pulled in so many different directions that you cannot take that top down approach only. And you have to look to those people that you really trust to help drive the program because you're out interacting with the different business divisions and different people across the business to, you know, solve problems that they may have or evangelize your security program. So it's really a mix between, you know, business, understanding business, understanding how to talk to other C-level people, as well as other executives in the line of business. But it's also being technical enough to where you can't get fooled by someone. And it, it has to be much broader than security used to be. I, I will say that it's, you know, the identity access, the business continuity, where it used to be, let's put up a firewall and pray. Now it's a lot more than that, obviously. And like I mentioned earlier, technology data continues to be proliferated out further and further away from the data center. You have to learn a whole new set of tools and a whole new set of approaches to take to mitigate all the risks that you might see. And you need to be good at something, but don't try to be good at everything or excellent at everything, but understand it so you can rely on people. And when you have a conversation with them, you can trust what they're saying and really assign appropriate people to take charge. Uh, That's what I think the the new uh, CSO looks like. And it's also very much an outward position now. I think, you know, people like me that are a little bit more extroverted than your typical techie guy or stereotypical techie guy, we can make a lot of headway in, in today's market because we, we are able to get out there. We are able to talk. We are able to talk business as well as technology, as well as, you know, projects and risk and all those things. So it's a lot more well-rounded than it used to be. Yeah. Being an influencer on a lot of different fronts. Exactly. Yep. And it's all about influence. Absolutely. Yeah. Mark, I, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, it was great chatting with you today. All right. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed it. Appreciate your time as well. That concludes this episode of the new CISO. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more episodes, suggest a topic or nominate a guest, please visit exabeam.com forward slash podcast.